1: What is it all
2: about? Should your door lock be able to tell the alarm that you've left home and set the alarm? How easy is it that is that to set up? Will anybody actually do that? kind of the ultimate case is like you you arrive home, the garage door opens for you, it turns on the lights, you say I'm tired, it puts the lights to the right temperature, it heats up the home, it puts soothing music on, like five people in Silicon Valley will set this up and nobody else will do that. Hello
1: and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. This week, a fan favorite is back on the program. Benedict Evans, who is a partner at Andreessen Horowitz, he's something of a tech soothsayer, as well as a newsletter writer extraordinaire, is with us. Or rather, I was with him. Last week, I headed across the bay to Menlo Park and we searched around and grabbed the spare office inside Andreessen Horowitz's headquarters to talk about five big tech questions. And I know you guys will enjoy this one because whenever Benedict comes on the program, people seem to really dig it. And I must say, if you are not subscribed to it, you should sign yourself up to his newsletter. It's great. If you have any interest at all in all things tech or anything tech, it's kind of a must-have. So do do that. And while you're there, while you're at it, Give this little show a rating and review. Kill two birds with two stones. You know what I mean. Anyway, let's get to it. So as we set off into 2019, here are five big tech questions with Benedict Evans. Enjoy. I figured we should start with, on the back of the recent Apple news, And this idea that, you know, phone sales seem to be slowing down, especially in China. And there's this idea that if we're getting, I think it's close to 4 billion people have a smartphone now. Hmm. Have we reached peak smartphone? And if so, now what?
2: So there's now about 5.5 billion adults on Earth. And about 5 billion people have a mobile phone. And somewhere between 3.5 and 4 billion people have a smartphone. And that number is going up, but obviously both of those numbers are slowing down as we get to the last half billion and billion people. And there's a lot of grey areas around what people pay for connectivity and what you pay to charge your phone and how many people in that have a smartphone but don't really go online yet. But we're clearly getting to the end of growth in this. We've run out of people. So you're seeing that in handset sales, which are now 1.8, 1.9 billion units a year, and you're seeing that in smartphone sales. And you see that in Apple Apple has probably eight to 900 million people using an iPhone today. So Apple basically won the high end and Android took the rest. And they're running out of people who are spending that, mo- that kind of money on a phone every two years. So that's kind of one issue. The second issue is that as a new technology sort of matures, the pace of innovation starts to slow down because the easiest, obvious stuff that you've always wanted to do has been done. And so, you know, they're thinner and they don't break and the cameras are great and the screen's high resolution and they're super fast and, and, and. And this is kind of what happened with cars. Like, there's not a huge amount of innovation in cars these days. And that's what happened with airliners. And it's what happened with PCs. The replacement cycle of a PC is now well over five years. And frankly, if you compare a new PC with a five-year-old PC, you can't really tell the difference. Yeah. And the same thing will inevitably happen with every new technology, including mobile phones and smartphones. You kind of reach the point where you've done the easy, obvious stuff that you wanted to do. And so that's where smartphones are now. And so you get people saying, oh, my God, Apple's forgotten how to innovate. Well, not really. It's more just, well, this is sort of where we are in the cycle of of new products. And so there's a kind of a general high level that the whole smartphone market is going to slow down and grow relatively slowly in the future. I think the second thing is China specifically, and there's a bunch of kind of macroeconomic indicators that the Chinese economy is slowing down pretty significantly. So I've seen reports suggesting the Chinese smartphone market overall dropped by 10 to 15% in Q4. Car sales in China in Q4 were apparently the lowest in over 20 years. Yes, there's smartphone-specific stuff here, and there's some Apple-specific stuff here, but mainly there's just Chinese people stop slowing down their purchasing of... Phones in general, high-end products in general in particular. It's worth noting Apple incidentally said that excluding basically Chinese iPhone, the rest of the business was growing by 20%. But, you know, over well over half of the business is iPhones, and so that business has slowed down. That's kind of the, the analytic discussion. I think the higher level point is that this is the conversation from the past now. Basically, the smartphone wars have happened, and almost everyone has a smartphone, and to the extent that they don't, they will. Next question. Next conversation. Yeah. This is kind of like talking about slowing down PC sales in like 2010. Like, well, yes, but like, that's not an interesting conversation anymore. We are no longer arguing about whether everyone's going to have a smartphone. Everyone on earth will have a smartphone. Next question. Yeah. We're sort of thinking about other things now.
1: So what are the things that you are thinking about?
2: Well, I think the tech industry in general is sort of thinking about machine learning and thinking about cryptocurrency as the next sort of fundamental trends that will drive change and drive new company creation. Um, then there's kind of continuation of, of existing trends like enterprise moving to, from on-premises hardware to software as a service and kind of continuation, expansion of e-commerce and creation of new DTC brands. There's all, all sorts of other things going on. The new fundamental megatrends, I would say, but they're definitely in machine learning and cryptocurrency. Right. So that was
1: leads perfectly to my second question, which is where are we with machine learning? I mean, because it's everywhere now, it seems. It's at, yeah. what a lot of people are talking about, but it still feels like it's fairly poorly understood by most people. And also there's this great paranoia about what is happening in China because, mm. of course, they have what machine learning needs more than anything is data to get better and
2: China has lots of people. Lots, lots of, of people, data, lots of data, something.
1: and less rules about it what you can do with it, and there seems to be a lot more hmm. resource being thrown at it. And I don't know what's true, what isn't, but yeah. it would be great to get a sense of what's actually happening.
2: So three or four questions embedded within that. (laughs) One thing is, so machine learning, kind of the current wave of machine learning starts in 2013, where people say this thing that we tried doing in the 80s that didn't really work and has never really worked would work now because we've got so much data and so much computing power. And so there's a sort of explosion, and everyone in Silicon Valley goes, oh, OK, that's the thing. And it solves a bunch of things that had never really been solved before around, most obviously, image recognition, speech recognition, translation, problems that had worked sort of OK, like three quarters of the time, suddenly work perfectly or almost perfectly.
1: The Chihuahua versus Muffin Yeah, thing. exactly.
2: All these kind of like, these the sort of tests that had had like, they'd had like a um, 30% error rate, 29% error rate, 28.5% error rate, 5% error rate, 3% error rate. Right. Like suddenly, oh wow. So 2013, 2014, 2015 is kind of the oh wow, let's pile into the low hanging fruit. And as venture capitalists, we start seeing companies which are kind of just, I'm going to take machine learning and do machine learning. Now that's trans- we've kind of diffused much more into kind of tangible applications in specific things. So for example, we just invested in a company that does natural language processing to analyze the text going in and out of Salesforce. So it works out which sales pipelines are working and not working. Like this sales process is not going to work because we've analyzed the text, the emails between your salespeople and the company. And it's so interpreting actual, what those yeah, sen- the lo- sentiment is? Yeah, or? it's looking at the text going in and out of that, that account. And so my point is sort of the actual very specific tangible use case. We have another company that does um, software for lawyers? You can now go and say, "Find me the angry emails," as opposed to "Find me emails that has this keyword," or do handwriting recognition, um, or you know, analysing footfall going through a retailer to work out which bit, where people are going and where people aren't going. So the point is, actual very specific use cases, and I always describe this as being rather like databases no company has a database they have thousands of databases doing different things all the way through the company like the badge security badges are a database the accounts are a database the hr is five different databases and in the same way there isn't a machine learning or an ai there's lots and lots of these systems it just kind of becomes it and we're sort of halfway through that process now and we're in this kind of phase of kind of massive expansion of the creation of companies and the kind of iteration of companies on them well now you could solve that problem using this or you could solve this other problem using with this I mean, I just met a company that's using a whole bunch of sensors on aerial footage to analyze crops, for example. Right. So that's not an AI. It's a whole bunch of other stuff and a business and a route to market and an understanding of which crops and where and what are you looking for. Are you looking for drought? Are you looking for disease? Are you looking for yield? Like, What are you trying to do? And so we've got that kind of diffusion from sort of very hand-wavy business magazine front cover the coming of AI through to, like, actual boring, like, real companies that are going to create real value and solve real problems that you don't know exist. The China question, I think China in generality reminds me a lot of the paranoia about Japan in the 80s. I think mean, somebody said to me that the only reason Rising Sun hasn't been remade with an evil Chinese company is because you then couldn't sell it to the Chinese movie market. That whole like, <laughs> oh my god, the Chinese, the Japanese are coming. Oh my god, the Japanese have invented a new form of capitalism. They've got better ways of building companies than us. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's just here is a big company, that big country that became middle class, and they went and created great companies and. I think you can kind of over-index on the, oh, my God, China thing, except, of course, the fact that China has a lot more people, which Japan didn't have in quite the same way. To the AI thing, I don't know. Yes, you've got half a dozen big companies there. It's not like there aren't big companies outside China who have lots of data, who are doing stuff. I don't think there's anything particularly unique there. I think there are questions about how much you can do by just saying we have lots of data. Going back to kind of the the discussion of what's happening, the best way I've come up with so far of explaining machine learning is that before machine learning, if you wanted to do something, you would try and write rules. So you say, how do you recognize a dog? Well, let me write you 15 rules that would let you recognize a dog. If then. Yes. Does it have pointed ears? You try and make edge detection. You look for for texture. You kind of build it all up and it would never actually work in the same way that trying to make a mechanical horse is theoretically possible, but it would never actually work. It would always fall over because you could never actually produce enough complexity, enough steps to replicate what was really going on in the real world. so machine learning does is say no I give you lots of examples I give you a million examples of pictures that contain dogs and a million examples of pictures that don't contain dogs and you figure it out and you figure it out the statistical engine will work out the differences the important point here is therefore what you're trying to solve depends on what examples you have and so it's not just well I get lots of data and like AI will pop out the other side or HAL 9000 will pop out the other side it's Okay, I have gas turbines. I want to work out if this gas turbine is going to fail. I give it telemetry data from 10,000 gas turbines that were not about to fail and 10,000 that were. And now I have a system that will predict that gas turbine is likely to fail. It doesn't do anything else. And so a lot of the sort of the hand-waving around machine learning skips that step and sort of thinks, well, just data, more data, data, data will produce something No, you have data about how Chinese customers use the railway system. That will let you optimize the Chinese railway system. It will not have any other value for anyone else. It probably won't even be valuable for any other railway system. You have lots of data about how Chinese people react to TV advertising in order to make purchases on JD.com. Okay, that has zero value to Baidu, never mind anybody else. And so you can really kind of overstate what it means to say they've got 800 million people online and they're all using data, and that's data. So, yeah, but there's four, three and a half billion people, four billion people online, and most of the rest of them are using Google and Facebook, and some, and a billion of them are using Amazon, and like, lo- there's lots of data out there. Right,
1: but it's, so it's, it feels like there's a bit of a dichotomy, at least in terms of the general perception between kind of this idea of a generalized AI that just can kind of. Use- Throw it at anything and it's going to be a yeah, I expensive. Mean, kind of my database analogy. So, yeah. if you
2: think about like sci fi, there's this whole wave mm-hmm. of sci fi in the 70s about in which there's like a big room with glass doors and a like, white lit up floor and ceiling and people in white coats and big reel to reel tape machines and like it's the database, it's the computer, it's the brain. Yeah. And like you go and you write your question on a piece of paper and put it in a slot in the wall and like the wheels turn and the lights flash and an answer comes out. If you remember the TV, Batman TV show from the 60s where oh, yeah. all these like computers. Pow, bang. Well, no, boom. what I mean is like you've got the bat crime analyzer a yeah. tron and batman goes up to it and like presses buttons and lights flash and it tells him who the criminal is I'm like we don't have that right we have no clue how we would make that what we have is a thing where you give it examples of gas turbines and it says this one matches the ones that are about to fail with the 30 with a 98 degree um, probability and that's all it does because that's all the data that it had that you gave it and there's no generalizability here or rather what you have is like a database or like electric motor you can use an electric motor to make a washing machine and a dishwasher, but you can't wash clothes in the dish in the washing machine. Yeah. Like the actual things you build, the data you deploy produces different answers, and so it's, it's, it's kind of from my point. Like it's not a generalizable cap- It's not a generalizable thing that you build. It's just a technology you can point at lots of different problems and build different things with.
1: Oftentimes, uh, reactions, regulation, what have you. <laughs> are the result of something happening. So, for example, if there's something around facial recognition and how it's used by a military or by an authority or whatever, and then everybody freaks out and then there's a wave of rules, Mm. are there any spots there where you see where there should be extra caution?
2: So I think there's sort of two-way places that you can have concern about this stuff. Well, there's three. First, there's, oh, my God, this is going to kill us all. We're going to create Skynet. We're going to create HAL 9000. The only people saying that, frankly, are people who are not working on this stuff and are not close to the technology. Because the people who are actually working on it look at this and say, we have absolutely no clue how to do that. It's like going to the Wright brothers and saying, I'm worried you're going to go to the moon. Like, well, that's not with this. Not with this. This is not going to the moon. (laughs) Maybe we can go to the moon at some point with some other thing. But not with this. Not with canvas wings and five horsepower engines. There are two other things. The first is people do bad stuff with it. This is the Chinese and Uyghur question. Chinese put face recognition everywhere. You recognize people. The technology is working exactly the way you think it's working. It's doing exact, functioning exactly as designed, and people are doing stuff with it that we don't like. Is that a technology question or is that a political question? I don't know, but it's, 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 it's hard to point that to that as solely a technology question or even solely a regulatory question. Now, if you think about other questions like, I don't know, denying people a credit card based on their race or based on where they live, is that Oracle's problem? Is that a database problem or is that a banking regulation question? And so I think when you think about those kind of questions, you don't say, well, we're going to regulate databases you say, we're going to regulate how credit cards can give people credit. Right. If you're worried about, I don't know, black people finding it harder to get parole than white people, you don't say, well, no, clearly we need to regulate what PCs. You say, well, we need, clearly we need to examine how the parole system works. If people are writing fraudulent letters in Word, you don't say, right, Microsoft needs to be regulated. You say, well, no, this is a legal question. And so I think you have to think about kind of what the appropriate layer within the system to apply the regulation is. And that tends to be close to the problem rather than a kind of a general purpose thing that's being used used for that. I think the second question would be, and this comes back to my examples point, that the system might not be doing what you think it's doing. And so let's come back to this examples discussion. I give you a million examples. I know what I wanted you to look for in the examples, but the computer doesn't. It has no idea what this is. It's just looking at a million pictures and another million pictures. So there's a great example here of somebody who is building a system to look at skin cancer, and they give it examples of skin that has skin cancer and examples of skin that doesn't. It doesn't occur to them, at least to begin with, that dermatologists tend to put a ruler on the photograph of the skin next to the cancer so you can see how big the cancer is. You think you've given the system a million pictures of skin cancer and a million pictures of healthy skin. What you've actually done is given it a million pictures of skin with a ruler on and a million pictures of skin.
0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com
2: slash style. Without a ruler on and the system is looking at the ruler because that's by far the most obvious difference and completely ignoring the skin cancer. And so this is kind of the question. The system is doing what you told it to do. That may not be what you think you told it to do. There's another kind of fun example of someone who built a system that was recognizing sheep. I have no idea why. Maybe they really like sheep. Maybe they're (laughs) Welsh or Australian, but they really like sheep. They give it a picture of a grassy hill, and it says sheep guess where all your sheep are? They're right. on grassy hills. And so all your training pictures of sheep have grassy hills in. So this is kind of the example problem, which is you know what you wanted it to extract from the example. The system doesn't know.
1: And it's also only as good as the data you feed it, correct? Exactly.
2: But it's also you have to understand what's in the data. And half the point of this is it will find stuff that you didn't know was in the data. Because if you could have, if it was as simple as that, then you wouldn't have needed to do this in the first place. So you get questions like the skin cancer example. You also get questions that apply to, well, you're using Demographic information to decide whether somebody's a good credit risk. What is in that demographic information exactly? Are you sure? Yeah. What else might be in there that you didn't realise was in there that you might that it might be using that you might not want it to use? So this is a story a, a while ago that Amazon tried using a machine learning system to analyse resumes, CVs of people they'd recruited. Guess what? Most of the people they have recruited are men. Guess what the system concluded? Only hire men because. That's what it looks like, and women have different CVs with different. And even if you doesn't, even if you don't like right gender, women use a language in slightly different ways, and maybe went to different schools or played different sports, and so the system would see this. System doesn't know what men and women are. System doesn't know what a university is, but the system is just drawing correlations yeah. between who you hired in the past, and so there are these To kind of to go back. So this means that, as I said, there are sort of two, there are three ways that things to worry about. One is Skynet, forget it. The second is people do stuff we don't want them to do. And the third is, people do not understand how the system works. Again, I compare this to databases. Example, one is people use a database to deny people credit based on where they live or based on their race. The other is you have the same name as a criminal and the police keep arresting you and you can't get them to fix the database or the tax authority have misspelled your name and it's easier to change your name than to persuade them to fix your name this that is to say the people at the tax office do not understand that there could be a mistake and there is no mechanism for them to correcting them the spelling mistake in the system this is what we call ai bias bias in the examples stuff in the yeah. examples that you didn't know was there it
1: was like that microsoft facial recognition where it was it was less accurate for people that had brown or black skin because the training data was yeah exactly white people.
2: and also So you need to use slightly different training data because it's less about contrast, more about features or something. But so there are these two problems. One is people know what it's doing and they're doing bad stuff. The other is people think it's accurate and they don't understand how it's really working and so trust it in the wrong ways. And that's kind of an education and training and kind of institutional question to think about. Regulation has a role to play in all of these. The question is kind of where do you put it? And as I said, it's like saying, you know, Bernie Madoff used Excel so we should regulate Excel. Well, no, we regulate investor managers and we look at why the SEC didn't take that up. We don't go and complain to Microsoft.
1: Next question. I'm going to paint a, what is probably a might, nightmare scenario for you. You don't live or work here. You are now in Washington, D.C. You are a congressional aide for a senator who.: So I thought you said this was a
2: nightmare. You mean <laughs> have to
1: leave Silicon Valley. <laughs> well, that's a whole other discussion. So you're in D.C. and you have to help shape... Or at least bring to light or help someone concentrate on what are the salient issues around regulation of call it big tech? Because we know it's coming. The danger with regulation, of course, is that it's dumb. But there does feel like there is a groundswell of regulation that is going to come, specifically probably targeted at social media or the big guys. What should we be actually regulating or looking at?
2: So I think, again, several things to say here. The first of them is I think you need to be sort of conscious of unintended consequences and you need to be conscious of the pace of change in the industry and not sort of trying to regulate something that happened and was over and done with 10 years ago and not presuming... That, like, stuff isn't going to change anymore, and everything is sort of baked in now. For example, I think it's pretty clear that big tech companies don't tend to actually remain dominant very long. So you know IBM is still a big company, no one's scared of IBM anymore. Microsoft is still a big company and a great company. Microsoft does not control the agenda in the tech industry no one's scared of microsoft anymore that happened very quickly and it didn't happen because of antitrust it happened because you know the focus of the industry moved from windows 32 based pcs to first the web and then to mobile and microsoft was unable to, to make that jump and so antitrust like, helped though didn't it? at least it slowed it down or distracted it. Not, not really at all not at all no i really wouldn't say that i mean antitrust is not the reason why windows phone was not able to compete with micro, with, with apple and google yeah you you have to think much more fundamentally about fundamental business model reasons, what happens when there is an open source thing that's free how does Microsoft react to that when their whole business model is selling software how do they react to that when their whole model is leveraging the existing desktop software and Google is saying we don't have existing desktop software, we don't care about that, we're going to market in a completely different way. People talk about this and say, well, antitrust is the reason why Microsoft doesn't dominate mobile and you can just imagine Nokia sitting in the corner kind of quietly crying and saying, oh, that's adorable. <laughs> so <laughs> I think this is one of this points is kind of presume rapid change. Think yeah. about unintended consequences. One of the unintended consequences, if you look at GDPR in the EU, massively be- beneficial to Google Facebook because of the way that that was structured. it said you can't use information across different platforms. Well, okay, we've got one platform, so we're fine. To the extent it's had an effect, it's strengthened Google and Facebook. And it was not an explicit objective of GDPR to do the opposite, but that was certainly in people's minds as it got implemented. So I think you just kind of need to think at a high level about, don't just presume, well, if we don't break these things up, this is just going to be like permanent and everything's over and nothing's going to change. I think you need to think about outcomes rather than looking at kind of specific mechanical details that are going to change very rapidly over the next few years. Second observation, I think tech is prominent. In ways that it was not in the past, and that tends to attract attention. So, when Microsoft was fighting Lotus, for example, which is a sort of a long-forgotten argument now, I would guess nobody in Washington had heard of Lotus, and most people had never heard of Microsoft. Yeah, that's not true of Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon anymore, because these company, because tech has become so much bigger, because everybody has this stuff now. I mean, in '95, there were only like 200 million PCs on Earth. Like that was it. That was the whole tech market. There 200 were, million. There that's were, it. There were 200 million PCs on Earth, maybe 150 in 1995. When Microsoft was in its pomp and Bill Gates was on every magazine cover, and, we and now there's five billion. Now phones. there's one and a half billion PCs and five billion phones and maybe four billion smartphones. So we forget how much bigger tech is, and that means it, you know, it impinges on people's lives. And you know, Amazon is present in everyone's life in ways that Lotus was not. Yeah. And so that just means when there are issues, they will be more to the forefront in legislative conversations, regardless of what the issues actually are. It's just this will move higher up the agenda. The third thing to say is that as you actually go through these companies, you could kind of do a matrix of questions, and they all apply differently to different companies. So There's not one question. So how do we think about trust and safety takedown of harmful content? Well, that doesn't apply to Apple yeah. or really Amazon. How do we think about law enforcement access to messages between people that we want to be able to follow? That applies to – well, that doesn't apply to Uber. Uber or Lyft or Airbnb have political conversations that have no, nothing in common with Google or Facebook or Amazon. Yeah. And so you kind of run down your list and you kind of, you say, well, actually, like the Facebook conversation, that's not nothing to do with Apple you know, or indeed Amazon. Again, to my point, one needs to sort of sit and think, actual question we're trying to solve here are we thinking about cross-border taxation are we thinking about retail in city centers versus cheap warehouses with seasonal labor forces like you have to kind of I think it's more useful to kind of go through question by question and think about the outcome there rather than saying there's a big company and we don't want the company to be big because well, what does that mean, and what would you do it does about feel like that?
1: the conversation at least in the near term, is going to be around Facebook just because of whether well, it 's the two thousand and sixteen election, Cambridge Analytica, all the data breaches, et cetera, It has the targets on it on its back the way the others don 't feel like they do
2: I think Facebook is in the news at the moment, yes, and I think some of the issues that they 've had and that they 're trying to get on top of kind of attract attention that's only one part of big tech and I think if you go to other parts of the world then people are more focused on Amazon and I think I'd go back to my point about kind of the matrix of questions those apply differently to different companies in different places and so I think the conversations kind of need to be different rather than just saying oh my god be big evil tech well first of all these companies are full of basically normal people who are sitting trying to solve the problems that we all worry about by and large and secondly those questions are different and so you can't just kind of have a we've got to regulate tech yeah it's like saying we've got to regulate industry okay are we talking about pg and e or are we talking about gm like, yeah no of course mean? facebook what is, is very different here?
1: facebook is very different from amazon but it does feel like they are first in the firing li- firing line so to speak in terms well, they're of they're the, regulatory in the, they're in the headlines from. do you have any sense of what might make sense to actually bring them in i mean everybody's talking about let's break up Facebook. So I think
2: break up is kind of a reflexive historical yeah. way back. It's I talking think, about the
1: robber barons when you had a steel he, empire or oil so or whatever. So I think
2: if you kind of go back and think about what that meant for a minute, so I, I'm it's not, not an expert in this field, but so what it used to mean was, you own all the you own the oil refineries and the pipelines and the gas stations. So competitive oil refinery can't get their product to market, competitive gas station can't buy gas, competitive pipeline can't get gas or sell or get any customers. Each of those are industrially completely separate businesses. It's just you put yeah. them in the same holding company and you're cross-leveraging them in order to drive your comp- competition out of business. A solution, you break them apart. And there's like a clear, straightforward logic. I mean, it may be that people argue with this in practice. But like the, in, as a, as a parable, there's a clear industrial logic for why those should be separate things and that, why that would create more competition. You could, make, could have made that argument about Microsoft. You could have said Windows and Office should be separate businesses, and they're using Office to drive Windows and Windows to drive Office, and you should split them apart. Yeah. Then you look at Facebook or Amazon, and they don't have separate businesses that leverage each other in the same way. Yes, Facebook has WhatsApp and Instagram. If you took WhatsApp and Instagram away, we'd be having the same conversation about the newsfeed. And for way sure. it drives consumption. Moving removing those bits wouldn't change that conversation at all. Even more so for Amazon. Amazon is one business. There is a logistics platform, and an e-commerce platform, and then thousands of products that get sold across that. And yes, there is AWS. If you haven't read Amazon's accounts, people tend to say that Amazon AWS subsidizes the rest of the business. This really isn't correct. There's lots of profitable bits inside Amazon. AWS is just the only one that breaks out the numbers so you can see it's profitable. Yeah. How would you split that up? It's like saying you'd break up Walmart. What would you breaking up Walmart mean? You could break it up geographically. Well, then, yeah, okay, kind of now, you've got, now you've whatever. got an East Coast monopoly yeah. and a West Coast monopoly instead of a national monopoly. Well, fine, What are you, you haven't achieved anything. You could say, well, okay, though you're going to split the fruit and veg from the dry goods. Like, what is that? that doesn't make any kind of sense at all. These are sort of single unitary platforms, and it's more difficult to apply the breakup logic to these, to these companies because there's not like an obvious... Unit A reinforces unit B, unit B reinforces A. It's actually all one platform with lots of things on top of it. And so I think that just specifically the breakup thing makes relatively little sense to me. That is not to say, of course, as you go through step by step, there are all sorts of places where you might want to change rules or apply things, whether that's like, what taxes does Amazon pay in the U.K.? That's not a breakup question. It's a question of cross-border taxation that isn't even specific to Amazon. So I kind of come back to my point. You kind of have to go through individually, line by line. So what do we think about this exactly?
1: Question four. You were just at CES Yep. in scenic Las Vegas. Yep. What did you come away with from there? Is there a best and worst of things or the things that were most salient or most ridiculous? Because it does feel like it is the whole gamut. So kind of
2: general observation, specific observation. General observation, what you're seeing there is kind of the output from the whole supply chain and half of the supply chain as well. So you're seeing all the people selling components, the people selling batteries, the people selling actual screens that would be incorporated into other devices, people selling electric motors, people selling foam rubber packaging. And most of what's happening there is you have a five-branch auto parts chain in Wisconsin and you've gone there to do deals and you're going to buy 5,000 cases and you're going to buy 10,000 speakers. It's a trade fair. It's actually not there for the purpose of showing consumers what thing they're going to buy that Christmas. And so I love going there because you see this kind of huge energy and you see thousands and thousands of small entrepreneurs actually out there hustling, building their business. What you see there as well is like you see a flow of trends. So like three years ago, loads of curved TVs that's all gone now two years ago in the kind of pavilion of small Chinese companies everybody was selling something with a fingerprint scanner on it that didn't work on the other hand kids now kids cameras I saw 20 people with a kids camera I can see that I've got a child, he's too small to have his own smartphone but wants to take pictures all the time. Okay, yeah. I might get him a, a foam rubber encased digital camera. That could be interesting for 50 bucks. Uh, but if like no one else buys it, then next year it won't be there and they'll yeah. be trying something else. And so you see this continuous flow of kind of iteration, experimentation, creation some people go and they see the edge case experiments and go, oh, this is dumb, that's stupid, no one would buy this, this whole place sucks, I hate coming here. I feel like that's a really kind of misanthropic way of looking at the world. Like, there's a bunch of people there <laughs> trying to make stuff. And every now yeah. and then, like, make something that seems weird to you. Well, fine. Yeah. Maybe it really is weird. Maybe you're just, like, maybe you're just looking at the world's first toaster and you'll say, why would anybody, like, want a toaster? What's wrong with using a f- toasting fork yeah. and, a piece, and a fire and a piece of bread? So, like, you don't know. Specifically, I think what you're seeing now is like the smartphone supply chain basically dumped a shipping container of Lego onto the floor. And everyone's picking up the bits and trying to work out what they mean. That's to say, as we were saying earlier, between one and a half and two billion phones are sold every year. Now over one and a half billion of those are smartphones. All of those bits are available for anybody else. So the iPhone had contained something like a thousand components. Yeah. And a very small number of those are like unique things that only Apple has or that are super expensive. But like there's gyroscopes and radios and microphones and little cameras. sensors. That's what's sensors driven this whole robotics. Yeah, but it's robotics and it's drones, yeah. but it's also the smart door lock. And it's Alexa. I mean, Alexa is basically, there's no battery in there. Otherwise, that's a smartphone and smartphone microphones, all smartphone components inside that. Right. And that's why we have this kind of, kind of Cambrian explosion of all these different devices. Because basically all they're doing is buying these bits and putting them in a piece of injection molded plastic and saying, well, do you want this? Do you want that? Is it a baby camera? Is it a wildlife camera? Is it a security camera? And so what we have is this kind of experimentation. So one of the questions within that, for example, was with connected door lock. I used to think a connected door lock was a stupid idea. Then I stayed in an Airbnb that had one. I think it's fantastic. The front door is just never locked. You don't have to lock the door. You just walk up the path. The door is unlocked, but only for you. And again, it sounds dumb until you have it. And like, oh, wow, this is really great. The question was, is this software companies learning locks or is it locks companies learning software? It turned out the route to market, the complexity, the number of different doors, the number of different door thicknesses and hole sizes and regulatory requirements and styles. And is it brass or copper? And is it rust? And do you want modern or classic? Massive proliferation of screws. And the lock companies went to a couple of technology companies and said, we need to add a chip to this and that worked and so it feels like the locks companies have won that Hmm. other spaces in like security cameras where your camera goes outside your door the question is anybody can make this really easily so how do you build a network effect around that or a motor around it so it's not a commodity and then the high level question you've got all these things how do you connect them together do you connect them together what's the user interface is it a good idea to be able to talk to it should your door lock be able to tell the alarm that you've left home and set the alarm? How easy is it that is that to set up? Will anybody actually do that? It's kind of the ultimate case is like you you arrive home, the garage door opens for you. It turns on the lights. You say I'm tired. It puts the lights to the right temperature. It heats up the home. It puts soothing music on. Like five people in Silicon Valley will set this up, and nobody else will do that. <laughs> <laughs> so the, we're in yeah. this kind of discovery mode of like yeah. which things in the home should be smart. The IoT
1: explosion. or what? How smart
2: and how much do they need to be smart with each other as opposed to does a door lock just for you? The example I used, I actually read a thing about this like this time last year. I compared it with kitchen gadgets. There's a point in time where everything in your home gets a DC motor. It turns out everyone in Britain has a kettle. Everyone in America has a coffee machine. Everyone in East Asia has a rice cooker. Nobody has an electric carving knife so which things work which things don't well they're all the same components so you're yeah. just kind of poking around seeing like well which would make sense and which wouldn't make sense and it's kind of very easy to go to CS and look at the electric carving knife and say well that's a dumb idea so well yes but it wasn't obvious then and it turned out that everyone did get a kettle or yeah. everyone in Everybody gets a kettle because yeah. you've got 240 volts so no one in America has a kettle because they don't drink tea and it's the voltage is so low they don't work anyway
1: and everybody has an instant pot these days yeah, well, that, again, that's another thing. But, uh, so this is the thing. We, yeah.
2: so, you see, so what you see at CES is, despite the name Consumer Electronics Show, it's a show for stuff that will eventually get sold to consumers, but it's not really a show for consumers. Yeah, You've got somebody selling like a really cool battery, emoji batteries. So you've got a battery pack in a rubber poop emoji, and it looks exactly like the emoji right. on your phone. Is yeah. cool. I was walking past the stand. I saw somebody trying to buy one. And like, no, no you don't understand. You can buy 10,000. Right. I not buy one. Right, right. This right, is right. a trade fair. Right, And so this is what everyone is here to, do, to trade, to do business.
1: So that was what you took, trying to figure out, repurpose all of these components into devices, connected devices.
2: Well, how would you connect all of these together? The same with, the yeah. thing with TV, particularly in the US now. Like I've got, you can have 45 different apps on your phone and there's going to be on your TV. If each of the major content providers want to pull their stuff and have their own app on your TV and yeah. their own experience. And you're going to end up with like 10 apps on your, on your TV all selling stuff from different places. And like, is that, does that? Is that the end point? Is that the right way of doing it? Shouldn't it all be aggregated into one service? How will that happen? It's as though you didn't have Spotify or Apple Music. Instead, you had the Warners app and the Sony app, and you had to know which artist was on which label. That clearly was not the end point. That TV is sort of halfway through that process. Like, they've all accepted it's going to be streaming, but they haven't really accepted, like, actually, you know, you need, like, an aggregator. Right. And so TV is sort of, again, in this kind of discovery question. It's like we go, step one was, okay, it's not linear anymore. Step two is, well, what is it? All of the incentives are against giving all of your stuff to Netflix and letting that own the customer. You want to go direct. And so everyone is now kind of thinking, well, yes, but we want to own that relationship yeah.
1: ourselves. To that idea of poking around and f- figuring out what's possible, driverless cars, mm. is it all over? Is it-,
2: <laughs> it just didn't work? So this is a kind of an extreme case of kind of hype curves getting out of the way, getting out of control. Machine learning means that we think we can probably make autonomous cars now meaning autonomous cars level five let's come back to that like a car that can completely drive itself almost anywhere without needing a human operator without needing rails without needing like stuff in the road to tell it where to go machine learning at least in theoretically means or like that ought to be possible however it's difficult and there's a bunch of kind of primary science problems that we are on the way to solving that are not solved yet so you can do it in constrained environments you can probably do highways now and so there's a bunch of people working on particularly long haul trucking in the US. Ninety percent of the miles are on a freeway, freeway's easy, although you're going fast, there's actually there's no side roads, there's no trees, there's no pedestrians, there's no cyclists, there's it's no kids line. running out of the road. Yeah. You know, it's a very actually a very simple environment. And so you have just having it computer driven on the freeway has huge value. Then you have to work out well what happens at the end, how does it get from the freeway exit to the warehouse? Do you have a human being waiting? Do you remote in over four or five G? Like what? But, like, that's a solvable, containable problem. The car that can drive from here to Boston by itself, that's 18 or 20 different problems. And say so that's harder and say so that's rather farther or further away. I've never met anybody actually working on this stuff who said it was going to happen this year or next year. Yeah. The exception is Elon Musk, who personally is not working on this stuff. He's working on rocket ships and electric cars. He kept hiring or the autonomous people were saying, well... Yeah, you say you it's going to ship this year, but it's really not going yeah. to ship this year. And it's not anywhere close to shipping this year And he called either. it autopilot, which doesn't Yeah, melt. so there's a, a there's a bunch of conversation yeah. one can have around that. So, of course, with an auto, actual autopilot, you still need a human pilot. So the answer to your question is sort of several. One is, no, this is like three to five years away from working. It might accelerate. It might not more interesting conversation and you mentioned level five so for anyone who isn't kind of up to speed on this there's this framework level one to level five level one is that your father's cruise control it will go 85 miles an hour or 65 miles an hour and it will go 65 miles an hour straight into the truck in front of you level two is it has radar and maybe lane keeping so it will try and slow down but don't bet on it and keep your hands on the steering wheel Level three is actually, no, you can tell it where you want to go and it will drive there, but you need to have your hands on your lap watching the road all the time and you need to be ready to grab the steering wheel at any time because it might just not get it, it might get it wrong. But it's going to sort of mostly drive you there. Yeah. Level four is you can read a book, but it might stop and ask for help. Level five is you don't need a human in the drunk car, you don't need a steering wheel, you don't even need a human cabin in a goods vehicle. I think level four, level five is slightly artificial because level four is most use cases and level five is all use cases. And I think, well, what on earth does all use cases mean? Does that mean it can drive up a 45 degree slope in the Himalayas by itself? Does that mean it can drive in Delhi by itself? And realistically, what will happen is you'll have stuff. And plus, level four is different in different places. So level four on a German freeway is not the same as level four in Kathmandu or Delhi or, or Nairobi. And therefore, what you'll have is things that can do certain things in certain places. Hence, my highway example. On the highway, it's level four. When it leaves the highway, it's level two because it will still stamp on the brakes if right. someone runs in. Before. It'll still stamp on the brakes automatically if someone runs in front of you, but you've got a human driver that's holding the steering wheel and actually steering it. And hence, I think saying things like full autonomy are actually slightly misleading, because what you'll have are cars that are full or auto- vehicles that are fully autonomous for what you want them for. And so and therefore what you do is you carve out particular use cases where you know you can make it work and you do that. And we'll have that much quicker than we'll have the car that can drive from here to Boston to Kathmandu by itself with a human being in the vehicle. So you have retirement communities, you have campuses, you have highways, you have military bases, you have ports, you have warehouses, have all sorts of places where it's useful. Kind of controlled environments. Yeah, controlled environments, constrained environments. That will happen first. You will also have like it can do Phoenix because Phoenix is way easier than San Francisco. This is why everyone's testing in Phoenix yeah. because the streets are super wide and super straight, and you know there's not many there's no pedestrians because nobody walks in Phoenix apparently. And this kind of gets to this back to your your opening question, which is some of the confusion because people say, well, we're launching autonomy, and then people hear that and expect, well, that means it's kind of a binary thing. It's like we've yeah. got autonomy now so hence the kind of question autonomy is not really a question of when it's more a question of where simply because we're not going to wait until we've got the car that can do anything anywhere before we launch we before we begin yeah you know we've got a car that can drive itself around a retirement community at 15 miles an hour pick people up and take them to the center great so should we just not launch that because it can't also drive itself around shanghai
1: and do you have any thoughts around this idea that some of the companies some companies are working on that are kind of city transport systems they're building a new car from the ground up Mm. that may or may not have a steering wheel and it's kind of this driverless thing that'll pick you up via an app or whatever it may be and drive you around they're quite ambitious plans to basically remake city transport with just a whole fleet of these driverless cars
2: so so two answers to this well there's three answers one of them is this kind of engineering questions around do you need to design a car from zero for it to be autonomous i'm pretty skeptical about that yeah The other questions are, well, number one, if you take a human driver out of a Uber or a Lyft, you change the economics of that vehicle, and so potentially you change the cost of that vehicle, and that changes the use cases and it changes how much people would use it. That has implications for congestion, for traffic, for all sorts of things. Also, of course, implications for parking and for public transport and so on. The next one is if you look at what, for example, Chariot was trying to do, um, which Ford bought, and unfortunately they've just shut down. If you also look at what CityMapper has been experimenting Mm -hmm. with, if you have the data on where people actually want to go in real time, then you don't need to have the buses sitting on routes that get planned once a decade. And maybe the buses don't all need to be the same size. And maybe they can run on different schedules at different frequencies, on different routes, depending on the time of day, because right now the only way a bus can work is you have to know where the stops are. Well, if you have a smartphone and the smartphones know where people want to be, then you can change what that means. And so like, if you've got a lift line with like five people in it, okay, is that a bus or a taxi or... And you know you get this kind of, ha, 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 those Silicon Valley people have reinvented buses. Well, yeah, but that's like, not, not exactly a useful way of thinking about it because actually you're breaking apart some of those binary distinctions yeah. between those. Right now, it's very clear. Private car, taxi, bus. Mm-hmm. Those are very clear different things if you can dynamically route things if you can put different vehicles on different routes at different times you're kind of breaking apart some of those questions a little bit and so you get to kind of a longer term question around what the how the transport system in a city might change you might decide today you take a train you might decide to take an on-demand vehicle today you might drive yourself you might decide to take a, um, a bus you know all of those questions shift back and forth i mean i used to live in in, a, in kentish town in london and am i going how do i, I get, used to
1: live in Tufnel Park.
2: Okay, so how am I going to get yeah. into town? Do I take a bus or a tube? Well, yeah. it's raining, so I don't want to walk 15 minutes to the tube station. On the other hand, the traffic's heavy, so the bus is going to be really slow. Well, if you're in an autonomous world, then the bus lanes will always be empty, and a lot of the traffic will be much more regulated and systematic, and you can have like dynamic block-by-block road pricing and all sorts. So maybe the bus will get there quicker. And maybe I don't have to walk to the bus stop. Maybe the bus stop can be dynamically moved two blocks to me because actually it doesn't make any difference to them and they know I want to be there. So that I don't need to walk to the bus stop anymore. So you get all sorts of ways of kind of breaking apart our assumptions, the assumptions we have today that are based on kind of limited information um, and limited kinds of vehicles.
1: And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Benedict for sitting down once again. I feel like these conversations, at least for me, are always kind of like drinking from a fire hose. But I really do appreciate it. I always feel like i walk away knowing a little bit more and just kind of at least thinking about some more stuff that I hadn't thought about before. So I hope you guys have the same experience. And if you have any interest, I will be writing in this week's Sunday Times, uh, writing about Facebook and various other things. So do check that out. You can also find me online at thetimes.co.uk, on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can email me with any questions or comments, whatever, at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. We will be back next week with one, maybe even two episodes for you. Until then, have a fabulous
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.
1: weekend. Take it easy. Bye-bye.